There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 31st of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The number of people who have become homeless and are in need of emergency accommodation continues to rise. The most difficult end of the housing crisis uh, is, of course, homelessness. It's the fact that there are roughly 12,000 people uh, being provided with state-provided emergency accommodation at the moment. Official figures released on Friday now record that the total number of people who are homeless in this country is 12,600. It is the highest number of people who have been recorded as homeless in the history of the state. 12,600 people, including 1,804 families and 3,765 children who do not have a place of their own that they can call home. And we are helping in lots of different ways. Uh, Ramping up social housing, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, Homeless HAP to help people uh, uh, find a place in the private private market sector. And also the tenant in situ scheme, uh, about 2,000 properties in process now to be purchased uh, by the government. Uh, from landlords so the people living in those properties can become regular social housing tenants, something I know you support and you advocated for many times, uh, something that's now really happening at scale. And I don't know why it can't be done in Tantony House. I'll look into that, but um, I, I, I definitely think that that, that is a potential, uh, potential solution. And we are lifting more people out of homelessness than ever before. Uh, that figure is rarely talked about or published. More people being lifted out of homelessness by governments than ever before. Unfortunately, there are many reasons why people become homeless and they're not always under the control of government. Uh, Family breakdown, um, increasingly people from overseas, non-citizens, 40% of emergency accommodation is now now people who are not Irish citizens, many of whom are not even entitled to social housing. So it's a much more complicated picture uh, than many would suggest. Let's speak to Mike Allen, who is uh, the Director of Advocacy with Focus Ireland. Good morning to you, Mike. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. The figures released on Friday are, are truly shocking, although I, I think uh, generally we've become numb to sh- such shocking statistics uh, because uh, we've become somewhat used to it. Uh, is the Taoiseach right, though, uh, in what he, we heard him say there a, a few moments ago, that there's much to this, that it's not always under the control of uh, the government and that the government is helping people to get out of homelessness. 
Well, there's a couple of things in that. First of all, the Taoiseach is, is, is wrong to say that we're supporting more uh, people out of homeless now than, than ever before. Um, in the past, we were much more successful in getting people out of homelessness. Um, and the, the reason homelessness has, has risen is because of a collapse in the number of people exiting homelessness. And that's simply because of the collapse in the private rented sector and the failure of the uh, social housing sector to take up the slack. In the past, you know, about half the families were leaving for private rented accommodation, half were leaving for social housing. Um, even though there is, as the Taoiseach is correctly saying, much more social housing available than there has been in recent years, um, there's been no increase in the number of um, homeless households getting that social housing. So we've turned the corner on uh, housing, as they, as they say, um, but we're a very, very long way under current policies of turning the, uh, turning the corner on, on homelessness. Okay. So, are, are we starting to see the results of uh, the lifting of the moratorium on evictions? Uh, that uh, would have started from April. But the latest figures, uh, this figure of 12,600 uh, people who are homeless, also tell us that half of the adults who became homeless between April and June uh, had been evicted and a third of all households had been evicted. Yeah, and, and we believe the figure is, is actually much, much higher than that because very often, particularly with families, also with single people, when they, if they get evicted from private rented accommodation, they go and stay with family or friends for a period of time. People don't want to go to emergency accommodation. They want to avoid that if at all possible. So they exhaust all the possibilities of sofa surfing or doubling up um, with family and friends. And then if you stay with your brother or sister for two or three months, then that just can't work out after that. Um, you're put down as, as becoming homeless due to family breakdown uh, rather than the, the real cause of your homelessness, which was losing, uh, losing private rented accommodation. So, yeah, the, the, the driving, what is the, the largest single um, immediate cause of homelessness is uh, people being made of, uh, 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 being evicted from the private rent sector, particularly for families. Um, that isn't to blame landlords. <laughs> I mean, usually we have this conversation, you and I then get uh, a lot of phone calls from, from landlords saying it's not all their fault. Landlords have been put in the, in the firing line, as it were. We've relied so strongly on, the, on, on, on private landlords with one or two properties who own those properties for very different reasons than, than, than sort of providing homes, unfortunately. And they have a legal right to, to withdraw. What we say is that we need much more quickly social housing or long-term housing, arrangements with landlords which provide people with security and, uh, and, and greater uh, security for, for, for tenants. Otherwise, we're not going to, to, to see an end to it. Can I go back to, to, to your original question about mm-hmm. what the Tuesday says about, about, you know, this is all being complicated. Yeah. If you listen to what he said about, like, another issue that really Focus Ireland has, has a lot of concern about is the treatment of, of children in care. We, as well as being a homeless organisation, we work a lot with, with children in care, as well as with the families uh, with, with, with children. And there's been huge concerns about Tusla's ability to have enough social workers to deal with that. And the Taoiseach's response is, oh, this is complicated. There's no silver bullet. Homelessness comes along. Oh, this is complicated. We know these things are complicated, but you are in government to solve them. Nobody is pretending there are silver bullets. Nobody mm. is pretending there's just one thing you've got to do. But these are solvable problems. And it really doesn't help 
uh, it doesn't help solve them. It doesn't help public mood. It doesn't help confidence in in, mm. the, in our health and social services if you keep on just saying how complicated they are. Yeah. They're complicated, yes, but they're solvable. So, but, but, really but I mean, the government can't be held responsible for family breakdown, uh, and uh, that's well, one can, of the, they, they can be held responsible for family breakdown when it mm. comes around through poverty or when it comes around through overcrowding. Okay. Um, so there are a whole range of different family breakdown isn't mm. sort of. You know, something that happens which is completely beyond mm. uh, you know, our society. It is something which happens very often because of social problems. And it's impossible to believe that there is some sort of you know, reason out there why family breakdown is you know, uh, increased an extraordinary level from where it was 10 years ago. There were, there were about 300 or 400 families. Uh, homeless uh, just over 10 years ago. There hasn't been something that's happened in this, our society that, that would explain uh, homelessness um, uh, at, at 12,000 um, arising mm. from family breakdown. OK, there hasn't been this huge surge in family breakdown. That has always yeah. been part of uh, the problem, but uh, probably more solvable in, in the past. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the Taoiseach uh, did make that point that that was one of the reasons why people ended up homeless. He also spoke uh, about uh, the number of people who are in emergency accommodation who are not Irish citizens, a total of 40%, he said. Uh, is that different than would have been the case a year ago? Not, no, not, not, not a year ago. Um, uh, obviously, there are more people who are, who are not born in Ireland, living in Ireland now than there were 10 or 20 years ago. But the thing to, to realise, the vast majority of the families who are homeless, who, are, who weren't born in Ireland, is they've been living here for years and years. So the, the huge number of Polish and East European people who came to work in Ireland during the boom, many of them stayed. They didn't buy uh, housing. It was very expensive at the time, or they, you know, whatever reason. They're in the private rented sector. So when there's a crash in the private rented sector and a landlord... Uh, and landlords are leaving the market, it's far more likely to impact on somebody who uh, is not born in Ireland because they're far more likely to be living in the private banking sector than somebody who was born in Ireland. I don't know why the teacher keeps on banging on about that issue about uh, about uh, mm. about um, Ireland. You know, quite clearly the teacher is not a racist. He isn't trying, to, but he sometimes is very careless about the sorts of language he uses because there's a lot of people who believe the homelessness problem is caused wrongly believe homelessness problem is caused by non-Irish people. And just keeping on throwing out that figure as if he thinks it means something doesn't really help an intelligent debate. The reason we don't have such a level of homelessness problem is because the failure to build affordable housing over the last um, you know, however long you want to take, at least 10 years, okay. you can trace the roots of that lot, is lot, it, lot is back it, further. Is it a distraction? It's a deliberate distraction, yes. Mm. Okay. I mean, you know, a, a distraction doesn't help the debate. Would you go further? Would you say it's dangerous? I think that, I think some of that language is is, is dangerous. Mm. Yes, and we've you know we've written to, to to a number of ministers in the past saying, look, you're you're putting out figures there without properly explaining them. It, it, it it's it's not you know it's not deliberately meant to be dangerous. What it is mm. is the government wants to draw attention away from the fact that the heart of the homelessness problem is the failure to, to, to deliver enough affordable uh, housing and provide the social services that need. Of course, there was always family breakdown in Ireland. It hasn't increased. And also family breakdown didn't always result in somebody becoming homeless. Mm. You know, the, you know, there was lots of periods of time where the, the terrible things that happened during family breakdown, very sad 
and, and very problematic, yeah. don't necessarily need to lead to homelessness. Okay. The homelessness causes is caused because the decisions that were made mm. to stop building social housing um, going back over 20 years, but particularly during the, during the crash, specific decision. And if you remember back mm. certain few years during the crash, we were doing 70 or 80 social housing in the entire country during a year. And we've never recovered from the disastrous nature of those uh, decisions and we need to, you know, we we, we need to pay, we, we need to to be honest that that's the cause, and we need mm-hmm. to therefore see that the solution is not just building more social housing, but making sure that that social housing gets to the people who need it most, who've been waiting the longest. Yeah, well, you'd wonder if uh, the Taoiseach uh, would argue that the state doesn't have the wherewithal to provide housing to people who can't provide it for themselves because of family breakdown. Uh, what about the eviction? I, to be fair, I don't think they do argue that. I mean, the, 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 no, the, I don't. I don't uh, think they argue that. I mean, I think that that's the the ironic part of yeah. the Taoiseach citing it as part of the problem. Commitment that housing for all is a commitment to build nine thousand social housing each year. And that's a great right. commitment. And anybody of our international colleagues who say the Irish government built this commitment, yeah. they, they're very they think that's that's amazing. The fact is that they haven't delivered them. Mm. They they've delivered more social housing uh, last year than for several years, but it was still uh, you know almost two thousand short of what they themselves said that they needed to build. Mm. And I, you know, so yes, you can criticize governments. Opposition parties will criticize governments uh, on political grounds. We're really sort of drawing drawing attention to the fact that the government needs to deliver what it said itself it was going to deliver. Did uh, the eviction ban work? Uh, The government says it didn't uh, because uh, whilst it was in place, there was an increase month on month in the number of people who became homeless. The the, the thing I don't really understand with the government's defence of of ending the eviction ban is that all the concentration was essentially saying, look, having an eviction ban in the first place was a stupid idea and it didn't work and so on. But it was their idea. Like, it wasn't anybody else who introduced the eviction ban. It was the government who introduced the eviction ban. And we were very clear, and it was very clear from the data was what impact it would have. Um, And they seem to have thought it would have different impacts. So the impact we expected to have, it would slow down the number of families who were becoming homeless during that time. Mm. It wouldn't end the number of families because some of the families are not becoming homeless from private rented. They are becoming homeless because they're leaving their parents or or, or in family formations or all family breakdown. So we knew it would slow down. We knew it would have very little difference on single person's homelessness because that isn't being driven by evictions. So the, the eviction ban is exactly the effect that anybody who understood homelessness would expect it to have. But somewhere or other, opposition and government got into sort of, sort of belief that it was going to have some dramatic effect, which it didn't have. And then they ended it just as dramatically as they had started it, mm. and without adequate preparation for the consequences. And the answer to that is, well, we are constantly talking and looking for more urgent action, we don't want zigzag action. We don't want to... Today we've decided to do something that we've never said we're going to do before, which is have an eviction ban. And a few months later saying, and now we're going to do something we've given you no preparation for, end the eviction ban. That sort of zigzag, panicky uh, policies are really, really destructive, no matter what the content of the, the policy. Making those decisions in that sort of um, way is, is, is not very helpful for, for um, any social policy area. 
but particularly when you're talking about housing and homelessness. Can I end by asking you about your confidence in this administration's wherewithal to end this crisis, which has gone on for about 15 years at this stage, by asking you to comment about a report in the Irish Times today about the government's housing commission. There seems to be a split in the commission over the proposal for a constitutional referendum on a right to housing. It looks like there's going to be a majority report as well as a minority report. And it seems that the reason that there is this split on giving everybody in this country a right to housing is that it could be challenged in the courts. That seems to be the minority view, that if you have a right to housing and that housing is available, then the government of the day could be challenged through the courts. And that would indicate that some members of the Commission don't have an awful lot of confidence in the state's ability to solve this crisis. Yeah, it's, I saw the report in, in the Irish Times. Um, it's hard to know exactly what's going on there until the full, full information is out. Focus Ireland was one of the organisations that strongly argued for a housing commission. We also strongly argued for a referendum on housing. But we also argued that they're two separate things. So in, so a commission on housing is meant to try and get over this um, zigzag policy, as I'm talking about, and trying to get sort of a a consensus in the country about what we're doing on housing policy over a 25-year period. And to do that, you need people from a wide variety of different perspectives, including developers and and NGOs and so on. For reasons best known to himself, the minister didn't appoint anybody from Focus Ireland to that commission, so I think that was a loss. But then he put the right to housing into the commission, and we always said that the people you need to decide what the wording for a, a referendum on the right to housing are people who believe in the right to housing. It was uh, a problem uh, awaiting to, to happen by putting the question of the wording for a referendum on housing into a body which was deliberate, which was specifically set up for a completely different purpose. And I think the result there is going to be setting back um, a, a lot of positive things and wasting an awful lot of time um, uh, you know, having roused Mm. Where, where they're actually not going to be very constructive. There are going to be people who don't agree even around the right of housing, to, uh, in a right to housing. That's why you have a referendum. That's why you have a democracy. There's always, you're never going to get 100% on that. And what you need to do is decide what is the best wording you can put forward. Um, if you are a government committed to it, which this government says that it is, what is the best wording you can put forward? And how do you build the strongest base towards that? I think they've just gone around this very much the wrong way, and I I think it has to confidence of the government. I think the minister really cares about the issue of housing, he really cares about the issue of homelessness. He's given himself a bit of a headache on this one. I do hope that he's able to, um, very much hope that he's able to to resolve it, and any help that Focus Ireland can give him, I'm sure we're happy to do so. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us as always. Mike Allen is uh, Director of Advocacy with Focus Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. It really is shameful to think that 12,600 people are homeless in this country. But why are those people homeless? Uh, One reason is because they've turned down accommodation that was offered to them, apparently. Anybody having to spend a prolonged period in emergency accommodation is unacceptable and undesirable. But the vast majority of people who are provided with emergency accommodation by the state uh, are there for less than a year. Um, And for very many, it's in around uh, six or seven months. 
Um, I, I've come across I've come across plenty of cases of people uh, who are there for prolonged periods of time, like three years, like four years, just like you. But there's often uh, a more complicated story behind it. And I don't know in your case, but there are plenty of cases now in my constituency where people who are in emergency accommodation for two years and three years have turned down multiple offers of accommodation. That might not be the case in your case, but it is the case. Uh, and we should factor that into our statistics as well, uh, because it's not the case uh, that all those 12,000 people have not been offered uh, permanent accommodation. Very many have. Well, undoubtedly offers are refused. There have been 5,000 offers of social housing refused in the past two years. So this was reported in the Irish Independent in June. Let's speak to the chairman of Meath County Council, Fianna Fáil, Councillor Tommy Riley. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Congratulations by the way. I don't think we've spoken since you assumed the position of of uh, but I, I'm sure you've heard before of people turning down property. Are, are you surprised at the scale of it, uh, of 5,000 offers across the country over the past two years? Well, I'd be very surprised because we here in County Mead have set um, an example as regards housing. We are way ahead of our targets and we have the refusal rate down to 10% from about 40. And that you drop back then for a year off the list if you... We set up this portal and it's advertised every week or every two weeks. You see a house, it's called bidding for a house. You see a house in uh, Drada or you see it in uh, Mr Mullen or Trim or Navin and say, I'd like that house. And if you qualify, you bid for the house and you evaluate it then to see, uh, are you you suitable for it or are you long enough on the list on that? And it has cut it by 30% in the last year or more. Okay, uh, so you're not going to refuse the offer if you're offered because one in five offers out of 25,000 offers were refused last year. It is an incredible statistic in itself though, isn't it? Yes, look, I know there was people offered a house in the new housing development in the Johnson there and there were non-national people and weren't much entitled to houses everyone else were here. But because there was no back garden and uh, there was no way around the house, they refused the house. Yes, a lovely, lovely new house there, three-bedroom house in Dunjocklin. And that's happening. It is happening. But as I said, we have it down now to about uh, 10% from a, a refusal rate of around 40 Hmm. The reasons given for refusing uh, were understandable on some occasions and not at all understandable uh, on other occasions uh, the house not being suitable or far away from schools and that sort of thing you'd understand well, people saying uh, well, that but well, but having no electric car charging facilities was one of the reasons <laughs> you'd wonder if people were in need of social housing oh yes oh yeah well we won't go down that road <laughs> but uh, no no I, I think the portal that we have we have put up and, and uh, where you bid for the house and you, you have time to check out is there schools is there bus service what services in your area, and then you can bid on the house. So, yeah, I, I'd love to get that house. Then you're, uh, you're evaluated, as I say. Mm. So it, cut out, it cuts out an awful lot of that. Are people really in need of social housing if they're uh, uh, in a position where they can be so fussy? Oh, they're probably not. The people that are fussy like that are not people. They are unfortunate people. The quietest people, of course, are the people that's always left behind in any walk of life. And that's happening in the housing section as well all over the country because they don't shout loud enough or they say, no, we don't want that house, and then they come back. I have had it here in Navin uh, where, where people refused a two-bedroom apartment. You know, they wanted a three-bed because and separated people whose 
ex-partner has a house, a three-bedroom house, and they want a three-bedroom house. There's an awful lot of that going on as well. Right. Uh, like some of the reasons for refusing uh, cited in the Irish Independent, there wasn't a second bathroom. Uh, and you've come across that uh, because they'd be used to having two bathrooms in the house. <laughs> oh, no, look, I, I don't know. I didn't come across anything, anything like that yet. Mm. OK. Uh, gardens being too small, uh, pets not being allowed, dangerous dogs not being uh, allowed, uh, I think. Well, I, I agree agreed fully with here. that one anyway. Yeah. OK. Uh, well, what about the qualification criteria for social housing? Uh, is, is it appropriate? Um, are earnings too high? Yes. Yes. No, the earnings are not too high. But listen, when you see, Michael, that a guard, a teacher or a nurse, even if they get married or they're partners, uh, they can't. They can't afford to get a mortgage. They're not getting a mortgage. I mean, it's it. They, they are the, the nucleus of our society. A guard, a teacher, and a nurse who mm. hand your child to a teacher at four years of age to bring her up in life. And th- these people are dedicated to the jobs. Guards, nurses, and and and, and there's others as well. Junior doctor. And they can't get a house. When you see a junior doctor having to sleep in the car because he can't afford the yeah, rent. Saw that in the papers recently. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's terrible. I mean, I can go back got to 50 years here in Navin when we built 20 houses or the government built 20 houses down on the Cows Road they were called the guard houses you know mm. and then there was there was people up in Vine Valley Estate and Ashton Place and that in Navin bunked together went to the credit union built 20 houses between them got the money from the, got the loan from the credit union this is 40 years ago mm. and why that's not happening more affordable sites have to be made available for schemes like this mm. but the the big elephant in the room, to me, Michael, is poor Panola. There are thousands and thousands and thousands. There are a few thousand, maybe more, 3,000 in our own county here, lying above in poor Panola. Builders ready to start building. Yeah. Infrastructure there, and it's not happening. Could becoming homeless be an opportunity for some people, uh, in that if you become homeless and uh, you have to live in a hotel, the Taoiseach said generally for less than a year, uh, you'll soon come up to the top of uh, the housing waiting list, won't you? And we know that people well, are waiting it, it, 7, it, 10, 12 it years. It will, it will. But my, 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 my real concern is for children, you know, mm. children in hotels or children in accommodation. Mm. Like I, I see close to the town here, we have a lot of U- Ukrainians and the kids are going to school and they've been accommodated and they've been well looked after. Mm. But children in hotel rooms, I think it's, I think it's desperate. It, it's awful. It saddens me to see this. But they'll be really offered a, a social housing uh, within a year, won't they? Uh, for well, I, I, the I don't know about that. I can't say they'll be offered social housing within a year, but I know that people that... Well, the Taoiseach said are, most people less than a year um, uh, would spend less than a year in hotels and that sort of stuff. Uh, so that would bring you a, right to the top. A, I must give him a ring, Michael, to say, get a bit of information on him on that because uh, I don't know whether you get it in a year or not. You might get temporary accommodation, but to get a, a, a social house within a year, I think now it's not that easy. It, people came in from Syria there in the last couple of years, and they were housed, uh, well, I won't say straight away, but fairly soon, and rightly so, coming from a war-torn country, you know. Mm. But what's the waiting time otherwise? 10 years, 12 years? Oh, it's, it's, it's Well, we've cut down here to about, I think it's about eight now at the moment. Uh, but we have exceeded okay. our target. But do here. you see what I'm saying? If you're living in a hovel... Yes. Uh, oh, the, yes. Oh, that, yeah, that, I, that I, the council uh, is paying for, because the council is very good at providing people with hovels, isn't it? Um, yes. Uh, and you end up homeless. Uh, there's a, a much better chance of you being provided with a, a nice house much sooner, is there not? 
Well, in a couple of years, probably. Maybe you'd still be waiting a couple of years, I think, maybe two to three years. But they may move you into accommodation out of hotel, more decent accommodation, rented accommodation, you know. As I said, my concern is for the children of what life is, lies ahead for them and when Christmas comes and where does Santa come from and all this type of stuff. Like, children are my main concern. But my big concern is you have a guard, a nurse and a teacher that can't afford to buy a house. We had a meeting with the guardian in Navin there the last couple of weeks and the Minister for Minister for Justice and the superintendent can't get guards to do overtime because they're living back in Leitham or Longford or Leisha or wherever they came from and it's not worth the while coming up for four or five hours on a Saturday evening or a Sunday. Like, we have to provide housing and provide affordable housing for these people, for the nucleus of our, sta- mm. our, our, of our state. Okay. 3,765 children living in emergency accommodation. Yeah. It, it really is shameful. Um, oh, you're, that you're, that you're the chair of Mead County Council. You're also a member of Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil was uh, elected to government this time around on a promise of solving the housing crisis. Uh, it would appear as though uh, it's failed dismally. dismally. Uh, how do you feel about that as a member of Fianna Fáil? I feel, I feel very bad as, as a member of a party that were renowned for providing housing. But I'm listening to committees, I'm listening to commissions. Whether you like them or whether you, whether you hate them, there should be developers on these committees that can deliver houses. But it's all about infrastructure. If the government doesn't pump out the money for infrastructure... We could, we have villages we could take, build 100 houses, build 50 houses, small villages around the bit, keep our schools alive, keep our football, keep our shop alive mm. in these little villages. But the infrastructure is not there. And the biggest, one of the biggest problems now we're facing is, of course, Irish water. Absolutely critical that is taken in, taken in hand because this is delaying, delaying, delaying delivery of housing. Mm. Irish water and the ESP, I think, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I, I can. I don't know that much about the ESB, mm. but I know about Irish water is cause it's causing havoc. But mm-hmm. as I said, the C- connecting a, homes to water yeah. services and yeah. to, to electricity. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. they're, the, they're the main boat bearers, you know. Mm. And like we, we definitely councillors here, and we put forward things for little villages and that to do 10, 20, 30 houses. But we haven't. The, like the government are announcing all these schemes, and the gentleman you had on prior to me. He said that they're announcing these schemes, but they don't know what they're doing announcing them. You need you need developers, whether you like them, whether you hate them. On it. Academics doesn't know about building houses. Okay. Kirk, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Tommy Riley, Fianna Fáil councillor and chairperson of Meath County Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we'll return uh, to uh, what RTE investigates uh, exposed much to the shock of many of us last week and how sex for rent is uh, something uh, that is happening in this country. It's remained hidden, uh, according to Rowama, which fights sexual exploitation, prostitution and human trafficking because they say it is seen as a once-off or a short-term solution to survive rather than sexual exploitation. Let's speak to Danielle McLaughlin, who is Policy and Communications Coordination, Coordinator beg your pardon, with Ruwama. Good morning, Danielle. Thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. As far as Ruwama is concerned, there is no doubt this is sexual exploitation. Absolutely, Michael. And it is um, a a situation that is developing and has been highlighted over the past couple of years. Um, There has been a bill brought forward to the government called the Ban on Sex for Rent 
bill. Um, and unfortunately, that hasn't gone much further than pre, pre-legislative scrutiny. Um, and what Rahama is, uh, is seeing is that even during the pandemic, this became an issue for predominantly women who access our services um, where people are short on their rent um, and this becomes a, prop- a proposition by a landlord um, and they're in a very difficult situation. They're in extreme financial distress and it may be seen, seen to them as a once-off solution, possibly short-term solution. Um, it may not be actually identified themselves as sexual exploitation, but the exchange of sex for goods or drugs or money is, is in fact sexual exploitation. Okay, is it prostitution? Because there is a legal question over what is happening and this agreement, which I think it can be argument between two consenting adults and no money is changing hands. Uh, Prostitution, of course, is not illegal, but purchasing sex is illegal. Do you believe that if uh, men are getting sex in return for accommodation, that that is the equivalent of buying sex? In other words, do you believe that those uh, relationships, those arrangements are illegal? We, we believe it is absolutely sexual exploitation. Um, we, we do, as you say, we have the law, the Criminal Law Sexual Offences Act that criminalises the purchase of sex and it, it acknowledges the individual's um, as, as, as vulnerable to sexual exploitation, so it is it has decriminalised the individual selling sex, and that's in order to protect them. Um, and so that is recognised uh, as a form of gender-based violence. An exchange of sex for anything in goods, accommodation, money, um, is is sexual exploitation. But we need proper legislation around that, and that that doesn't exist in the current legislation. There is commitment by the government um, and the Minister for Justice. Mm to look at this within the current legislation but we don't have it yet. Well that's Um, gone back to the drawing board uh, as I understand it uh, and uh, the bill that was put forward by Keena O'Callaghan is not under consideration so we really are at nowhere in terms of specific legislation uh, which would outlaw this activity uh, where sleazy landlords are renting rooms to women for their own sexual gratification. But uh, I suppose my question is, is that illegal under the existing legislation that we have in relation to the purchase of sex? It's not, as we as we gather, um, we know that the legislation currently is focused on prostitution um, and we, we would be asking government to, to reconsider the bill, the specific bill on, on um, ban on rent, sex for rent. Um, and we know that there are landlords out there taking advantage of this situation. Um, we know that they are fully aware that what they're doing is, um, take, is, 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 is actually, they're, they're, they're conducting themselves as sexual predators, preying on individuals who, you know, may have less support. And um, we know typically it's migrant women that are targeted. Mm. Um, a lot of the women that we work with here in Rahama um, are, are from migrant backgrounds. And with fierce social social networks, support, um, anyone to rely on, and can basically can be coerced into um, the situation of exchanging sex. Mm. Um, based on their, their financial situation. And we've been continuously highlighting this for some while um, and including this good concern um, to protect victims uh, or Ukrainian refugees um, who are fleeing conflict and they are at extreme risk of sexual exploitation as well. We know that this this was also demonstrated in the, the Primetime um, documentary on Friday evening one of the one of the 
aliases that was used by the, the journalist was a Ukrainian woman. Um, and it was it was really highlighting that those men are out there and they're mm. often portraying themselves as ha- having a solution. Or well, it was, it was a, a couple, wasn't it, who had advertised for a Ukrainian woman. They had specifically said a Ukrainian woman and then they seemed to be questioning whether that was prudent uh, when they met the reporter. Uh, but to place a, an ad like that, you would have to assume that the offer, if you like, would be attractive to a Ukrainian woman because they are particularly vulnerable, which makes it all the more horrible. Yeah, particularly vulnerable in that they have very other few few choices or resources or people to go to. And unfortunately, you know, these these people, these predators are using online websites quite easily to advertise um, rooms that are available, but but with additional kind of requests and it's very vaguely concealed. Mm. Um, Another part of our our advocacy at the moment is to um, seek for for legislation to apply a legal responsibility on these, these online advertising companies and to have more safety measures in place and to, to make sure that they can detect and prevent posting such adverts um, because we, we do need to deter landlords from exploiting that, to exploiting the websites in order to actually sexually exploit women. Mm. Uh, you say poverty is at the root of it all, uh, that women become vulnerable uh, when they're impoverished and end up doing uh, things, offering acts, sexual acts uh, in, in return. Uh, not just for money, but for accommodation, drugs, or, or whatever is being offered. That's right, and it's um, it's 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 not a new phenomenon, and it has been highlighted for some time in in public discourse and with the bill. But we know that it is it is around a long time, and it, 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 it's additional to all the other forms of sexual exploitation. Um, but what we would highlight is that the the impact of this on individuals, um, it, you know, we're seeing on a daily basis the harm, the very extreme harm that this can have on individuals um, who've experienced sexual exploitation. They're very traumatized, um, and they can they, they can be impacted by physical, sexual, and mental health issues on a long term basis, um, PTSD, anxiety, fear, uh, depression, and our service offers holistic support. Um, for victim sexual exploitation and human trafficking and we do encourage any woman who has been affected by this um, or exploited for exchange for rent um, to contact us um, and we have a free text number they send the word uh, REACH to 50100 and we can get back and help them. Okay. Thank you indeed, Danielle, for joining us uh, this morning. Danielle McLaughlin is uh, the Policy and Communications Coordinator with RUWAMA. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, new legislation comes into effect today, which may affect uh, insurance claims and I think the hope is insurance premiums. It aims to rebalance the duty of care between occupiers, that's businesses or community groups or organisers of events, and visitors, recreational users, and trespassers for that matter. Uh, there is uh, also going to be limits on uh, the 
circumstances in which uh, you may be liable if somebody enters your premises uh, illegally. Meanwhile, a campaign is uh, to be launched tomorrow called Enough is Enough. Uh, This is a campaign that is being launched by the Alliance for Insurance Reform. Brian Hanley is its CEO and he joins us now. A very good morning to you, Brian, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme today. Your campaign uh, is in conjunction with the commencement of this legislation uh, and it is to stop what you call unjustifiable personal injury claims. Uh, A compo culture, I suppose, in effect, that we've become accustomed to in this country. Good morning, Michael. We certainly welcome the the commencement of the legislation today and see it as a a common sense and proportionate rebalancing of the duty of care. There are probably three maybe specific changes that that, that uh, will have, we believe will have significant impact. The first of which requires people coming onto somebody's property to exercise a reasonable degree of care for their own safety. There's an onus on people to be responsible for their own actions. It doesn't, if there's negligence or anything and a harm and a hazard and harm caused from that, well, there's still the opportunity for to, to, to seek compensation and appropriately so. But what this does ask for now is that people exercise a reasonable degree of care for their own actions. The other one of the other initiatives um, or changes that will be brought about um, is that the legislation also restricts the circumstances in which trespassers may pursue a successful claim. And the third area is, I suppose, what we might call the voluntary assumption of risk. So today. Up until now, liability could only be waived by by a written agreement, but the legislation expands the circumstances in which this liability can be waived. And I think it's a common sense approach where adults can knowingly uh, decide to partake in an activity that might have a slightly higher degree of risk in it. But if they knowingly do so, they can't then turn around and and, uh, take a case in the absence of negligence. The example I'd give for, is if I was to go and play five-a-side soccer this evening. Yeah. Now, assuming the, the conditions and the facility is in good working order, I know there's always a risk or there's an increased risk that I might hurt myself and you know, break a bone, God forbid, or something like that. But that's an accident. And I've voluntarily accepted an increased risk by going to play the, play the sport. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't automatically then entitle me to, to, to compensation because that's what an accident was, ultimately. It, it, these things happen and it isn't, it isn't okay to go and then to take a case against the, 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 the premises. And, and you so should on. know the risk that there is an accident before you partake in the match and take responsibility for Precisely. what occurs because you were aware of the risk. That's exactly it, Michael. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And that's very much, I think, in part then what the Enough is Enough campaign is, is, is about because I think the legislation, um, if implemented meaningfully, does have to uh, hold out the prospect of really transforming the insurance liability landscape. Um, you know, we would say it would help to greatly reduce the number of minor slips, trips and falls going through the, the courts. You know, the unjustifiable claims that, that harm policyholders in the form of crippling liability premiums. Yeah. I mean, I told you, I mean, there are such things as accidents. And these actions and those claims are not victimless pursuits. Um, and it's really important we kind of raise awareness about that issue yeah. and the harm that they do. And now with the timing of the of the duty of care changes, it's an important opportunity for us as a society. Well, a- anyone who has an insurance policy is the victim uh, because insurance policies are more expensive as a, a result of it. Uh, but also victim to it is the business because it's crippling business because the businesses can't afford to take uh, out uh, insurance. Another example, perhaps, uh, about personal responsibility, understanding and accepting risk and your own responsibility for that is, let's say, a bungee jump. 
I mean, I, I imagine it's quite easy to get whiplashed in a bungee jump if you're going to do anything. Uh, but uh, you, if, if you sue for that, uh, well, then uh, that's obviously going to add to the policy that is being quoted or may make it impossible to get a, a quote uh, for somebody who wants to uh, provide that type of service. And there are two issues there. One is the actual, for some sectors in society, the ability to get cover at all is very, very difficult indeed. And for those then that can, it's paying cripplingly high insurance premiums. I mean, mm. this what this does today really uh, is um, it should tie in directly with the premiums that businesses are paying because I suggest a significant factor in determining premiums is the likelihood of a claim being made against the business. Mm. But as a result of today's commencement, like the risk profiles for all those organisations have now changed drastically. Mm. And this should then be reflected in the insurance premiums going forward for businesses. And if not, I think there are serious questions for both the government and insurance companies themselves. Okay. Uh, and trampolines, bungee jumps, uh, or uh, bouncy castles. Uh, I'm, sorry. I, I'm of an age where a bouncy castle is like a bungee jump to me. Uh, you try? <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I mean, obviously you can fall and hurt yourself doing those things, uh, but it, it just seems ridiculous that if it happens uh, that you can sue the company and as a result the comp- there, there are no bouncy castles uh, available to kids because the companies can't get insurance. Right, and this and the whole insurance issue and the issue of, of unjustifiable claims permeates everything. As you say, whether it's it's from the bouncy castle for a kid's birthday, but it might be some adventure sports, but it's actually even your local shop, you're looking to put on a concert or an event for theatres, for voluntary groups and charities. Yeah. Now insurance premiums are rising and rising. And it's funny, it comes in the context of like what has been a whole of society effort to tackle this issue. I mean, the judicial guidelines came in a couple of years ago, which reduced the size of a awards paid out. They're much more specific and targeted. They replace the book of quantum. We know from a number of recent reports that the the number of claims have gone down. So if you have... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Reduction in the number of, in the volume of claims, and indeed reduction in the amount uh, of money awarded and then you're taking on this uh, the duty of care change in personal responsibility the only piece missing is the reduction in premiums mm. 
You're critical of those who make these unjustifiable claims, this combo culture, uh, as uh, we know it. You're critical of lawyers, insurers, uh, the judiciary for that matter. Uh, Interesting to see your criticism of doctors uh, as well. They play a role in this, do they? Yeah, I I don't know that I would directly, you know, I I characterise it as critical, but what I would say very clearly is that it is a whole-of-society approach that's needed. Like, the legislation has to be, that is commenced today, has to be, you know, it has to be rolled out in a meaningful way, and everyone has to play their part when it comes to dealing with unjustifiable claims. It, it, has, to, it has to be how we as a society approach it, that they're not condoned or accepted. And all those that engage in the process do so in a way that, that, that reflects the sentiment of the, of the legislation that's passed today around personal responsibility, even the concept of an accident, you know, that something can happen and it isn't automatically somebody else's fault and, I'm, and with an automatic entitlement for, for money. You know, where there's negligence, those things should be there and that's what insurance is for. And we would never say anything to contradict that at all because that makes sense. But it is for all these additional claims that really end up impacting directly on businesses and their premiums and indeed on, the, on, our, on, our, on our culture as a society. Okay, Brian, thank you for taking our call uh, and uh, for joining us uh, today. Brian Hanley, CEO of uh, the Alliance for Insurance Reform. Some of the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Jim in touch with us about social housing, saying that it is organised uh, in a way um, that needs to be looked at. He says he knows of a single man who lives in social housing. Uh, he has a four-bedroomed house all to himself. Surely it would have made more sense to house him in a one-bedroom or two-bedroom house rather than giving him four bedrooms in the house that he's uh, being accommodated in. Surely those on the list should be accommodated according to their individual needs to ensure the best of the accommodation at the council's disposal. That would seem a very, very unusual and rare story, Jim. I'm not sure uh, that that would be in line with uh, council uh, policy. I'd imagine there's more to that. Sarah in touch saying it's only right that those who refuse social housing for minor reasons are moved down the list. Some of the reasons given are downright laughable. You should be allowed one refusal and that's it. Otherwise we'll never see any headway being made. Thanks uh, for that uh, Sarah as well. Um, A WhatsApp message uh, that comes uh, from someone who says 10 years is the norm. Leo Bradker not telling the truth as usual Michael, especially if you're single. I'm on the council waiting list since 2010. I got one offer a few months ago I viewed it and I nearly got attacked for not having a cigarette Uh, it was far from everything and everyone I know uh, and everything I do unfortunately I have chronic COPD and asthma from asbestos and I'm not great at getting around uh, the antisocial behaviour in the area is unbelievable. Uh, another text uh, from Deirdre Navin says, Michael, of course people from outside the country coming in is affecting housing availability. It is not humanly possible to keep up with the demand. We should not be allowing people into the country uh, until people are sorted out. When the Ukrainian people came in, it was supposed to be for a few months and I don't know, um, I think it was always said it was uh, going to be uh, for an unforeseeable amount of time. Who could predict how long the war would go? I think the other thing is is that people who are on the housing waiting list are treated differently from those uh, who are seeking international protection. Uh, we've uh, somebody else in touch with us about housing saying the waiting list for a single person in Meath is up to 14 years. I'm on the list and I was told that a few weeks ago. 
I think it could be true to say that uh, there are different waiting times for families than there are for single people. Homeless people aren't no threat to the government, says another caller who's sent a WhatsApp message. They don't vote. Uh, And how can they vote if they're not on the census list? That's why the government couldn't give a toss. Homeless people don't matter. It's just a minor irritation to the government, says our caller. Thank you indeed. I'd hope that's not true. Uh, I'm not sure there's evidence of an improvement in housing lists or indeed the homeless figures, but I'd hope that's not true. Uh, other people may have a say. Our phone number is 0419832000. That's 0419832000. You can also comment if you want to. Text us, text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the war in Ukraine is having an impact on all of us here and across uh, the European Union. As you've been hearing in uh, the bulletins today, Social Justice Ireland says that the war has contributed to to a contraction of 0.1% in Europe's economy for the final quarter of 2022. Michelle Murphy is the research and policy analyst for Social Justice Ireland and joins us now. Now. Michelle, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I suppose it's no great surprise that the impacts of this war in Europe are being felt far and wide. Good morning, Michael. No, no, it's not. And I spoke, this this is the 15th actually publication in our European research series and we've just come out from examining the impact of the pandemic on the EU and, you know, we're now looking at the impact of the outbreak of war and I suppose if you look at the headlines today there doesn't seem to be any resolution in sight so in the space of a year really you've seen as you said a contraction in the economy inflation rates generally peaked at 11.5% but then if you look at and that's as a result of the EU having to switch its energy supplies no longer using Russian produced oil and gas then we had the energy inflation rates were as high as 38% last year and you even saw that here whereas home heating oil actually there was an inflation rate of nearly 80% in the home heating oil in a year in this country so Mm. and that crippled so many people I mean it made it unaffordable and led to the government uh, with its energy credits and so on uh, uh, an intervention of uh, that sort uh, I don't know it was unprecedented wasn't it I've never seen anything like that before no we haven't and I suppose you're still seeing, even though energy prices have fallen, we've seen that you know these prices aren't being passed on to the consumer. We see ministers, you know, making statements about this, but we haven't really seen any any, I suppose, real impact in terms of reducing and making those reductions being getting them passed on to the consumer. And that's I suppose the price of energy has a real impact on food inflation as well. That's it's already at sixteen and a half percent this year. And those are the two things that households can't avoid. You know, your energy bills and your food bills. And what happened is, you said, Michael, either it becomes absolutely unaffordable for you and energy was subsidised yeah. last year to the electricity credit um, by government. But, you know, we're looking into the second, potentially a third year of this now of, you know, food and energy and then housing as well being unaffordable for people. We're seeing more and more households either dipping into their savings to cover day-to-day expenditure or falling into debt to cover day-to-day expenditure. And that should be really concerning because it's very hard for them to get out of that debt. Then, you know, we saw with the moratorium on um, disconnections um, there last year and the energy credit, it meant that, 
you know, those who were in arrears on energy bills, for example, those arrears fell, there was less disconnection. But once those energy credits went through the system, arrears increased to reach. Mm. Again, you know, gas arrears never fell because obviously there was no credits going towards gas bills. And so it's going to be really, really, really hard for those households to get out of that debt then once they fall into it. Mm. Well, it's had uh, many different impacts in many different ways. Uh, And uh, indeed, uh, the war in Ukraine has uh, more than any other conflict or emergency situation in the world led uh, to displacement of people who have arrived in this country in numbers never heard of before. Absolutely, and, and we never thought we'd see it. So we've seen over 8 million refugees displaced from Ukraine, and that's not counting the people internally displaced within the country itself, which is also considerable. And the impact on those people has been enormous. So about half of that 8 million, or more than half, they moved to other EU member states. And you know they're entitled to legal residency, to access the labour market and to public services because we the EU implemented the Temporary Protection Directive last March, which is really positive. But obviously that has put pressure on services. Here, you know, we see the extreme pressure on housing, for example, on healthcare services and on school places. And that's, I suppose, reflected in other countries in the EU and it's obviously reflected in pressure on other infrastructure in other countries. We did, we have seen, a, I suppose, um, a reallocation of cohesion funds. So they were then directed to things like housing, education, healthcare. That was really significant. It was a budgetary precedent for the EU. But there's no guarantee that that's going to be repeated this year or in 2024. So that would be a concern. And I suppose for for us looking at the overall policy in the Mm. EU, there is still a really, really strong focus on deficit reduction for any additional resources that a country might have. And we feel that that's really misplaced. Okay, you can make that a medium-term objective, your deficit reduction, your debt reduction. But those additional resources really needed to, need to be used to address social imbalances. So in Ireland, obviously, the obvious issue is housing and our energy infrastructure, both of which are, you know, really not up to scratch. Um, there's different infrastructural issues in other countries. But to get away from this focus on only paying down the debt with any additional resources you have and actually looking, well, what is the social situation for people in the country? You know, can they access housing? Mm. Can they access, you know, what's the price of energy? How do you reduce those things? And how can you actually improve, you know, the lives of European citizens? Because there are going to be the EU elections next year. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see both the turnout, but also you know, the impact that European policy has had and how the EU was actually, I suppose, viewed by people, not just across Ireland, but across the EU. Yeah. Well, will that make any difference? Uh, I mean, um, whether people are finding it difficult to make ends meet or whether they're finding it difficult uh, to find somewhere to live. We uh, had a text a few moments ago from somebody who was saying uh, the reason that uh, there is such a, a problem with homelessness in this country is that people who are homeless aren't on the census and they can't vote. Uh, so uh, it's of no consequence to political parties. Well, so, yeah, that's one. obviously the people who, you know, either march to the door or who are most likely to go out and vote are those voices that are, that are heard. But I do think it does have an impact on people and 
you know, the government here, obviously, we have a huge issue with housing and homelessness, and that's where we should be directing windfall gains, the €6 billion euro additional resources that we have this year. The bulk of that should be put into housing and homelessness mm. and addressing that crisis to people. And yes, you can put money into a rainy day fund and use a proportion to pay down your debt, but not all of it. But I think, you know, it's also up to our, our representatives in the EU, or MEPs, to actually, you know, represent these issues within the European Parliament as well. So represent the social imbalance issues and how they're not really, you know, when the European Commission comes here every year and does a country-specific report and our, our country recommendations, there's only predominantly economic things to do with debt, taxation, various other issues. There's very few to do with social issues, things like poverty, you know, in-work in poverty, thing, you know, job quality. Those, they don't get into the CSRs. Those are the kind of things we need in the CSRs. And I, I think, you know, and I suppose you probably, all your listeners will have, I suppose the big debate on European policy in recent weeks has been the nature restoration yeah. law, which has really, you know, galvanised a bit, not just in Ireland, but across the EU. And you mm. are going to see a greater impact of EU policy on our daily lives due to climate issues mm. and some of the regulations and legislation going through. And I think that's probably you know, one of the areas that will open up in the European elections next year. But also, okay, but you, know, you could also see uh, from the Nature Restoration Bill how important public opinion is, the opinion of the voting public uh, and the objection yeah. of farming communities uh, here and across Europe. Obviously a huge uh, uh, part of any political party's consideration and when there was such opposition, then that changed the legislation. It did, and I suppose what you really saw was a problem with communications as well, because from the outset, the bill itself wasn't communicated well, I would argue, at an EU or a national level. And then what happened was there was a debate on the airways, and as you say, public opinion really decided what the you know the voting mm. blocks at an EU level were going to do. And I think there's a lot of learning from that, because that's just the first step and that type of legislation, you know, that's going to be coming down. That's mm. sort of the, the initial toe in the water. Um, and I suppose, what, you know, what you probably will see then ultimately if, you know, if, for example, if the EU fiscal rules prevent us from using our additional resources to invest in social housing, to mm. invest in, you know, re- reducing or eliminating homelessness, you know, that would have a real impact on public opinion here um, and would certainly, I think, become an issue next year when during the European elections. And also the fact that even though we're at full employment, employment is pretty high in the EU, one in 10 people in the EU who have a job live in poverty, similar numbers here. We've never really gotten to grips with that. You have 15 million older people living in poverty. The majority of them are women. Mm. Really concerning as well. You still have 15 million children living in poverty. And we know that poverty, if you experience it in your childhood, it has a huge impact throughout your life. Mm. 70% of people in the EU who are in poverty grew up in poverty. That's mm. reflected here. You know, So those yeah. are the kinds of... transitional, generational, really as, you, as you said in your statement, and that if you are born into poverty, there's quite a risk that your children will also be impoverished. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. We see that here from, you know, data from the CSO and we see it at a European level. Yeah. And that should be concerning us. And, you know, the Taoiseach did set up his Child Poverty and Wellbeing Unit, uh, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, in December mm. when he went entered back into the office of Taoiseach again. So, you know, we'd be looking for some moves on child poverty in the budget as well to, you know, just 
see what his real commitment to reducing child poverty is. And you'd have to have poverty. a move in relation to homelessness uh, <laughs> if that uh, was to have any real impact. Would you know when you've yeah. t- over what three thousand seven hundred children who are in emergency accommodation? It really is shameful. It is for a country with our resources, mm. and you know it. In 2023, it's absolutely shameful. And the long-term impact on those children and those families is is staggering. And then at the same time, we're having arguments on overruns for the children's hospital that absolutely no one seems to be able to take control of. And we seem to be absolutely unable to prioritise, you know, children and families. We seem to be unable to get to grips with homelessness. We seem to be, you know... Mm. unable to get to grips with the housing problem and I suppose the question has to be why? Why? What is it that that's going on? Why can't we use the additional resources we have to actually improve outcomes for people? Why can't we address homelessness? Why can't we build more social homes? And if there are blockages, you know, in terms of regulation, legislation, well what are they and how do you get over them? Mm. You know, with this, not only have we got our, our you know, the government and TDs and centres, I mean there's any amount of civil servants and government departments, very well qualified, very highly paid civil servants who are really good at their jobs, who should be able to come up with solutions as well to some of these issues. Because, you know, we've these issues predated the 2020 election. We're still talking about them and they're probably going to dominate the next election as well because they haven't been addressed. Yeah, it seems to be the case. Uh, and uh, it uh, was something uh, that would be addressed, we were promised in the last election. No doubt we'll hear promises like that uh, next time around. Delivery is what people would like to see. Michelle, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us today. Michelle Murphy, Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Some more of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, We've Tony and Trim uh, texting us uh, this morning asking, was I hearing things uh, this morning after your chat with Tommy Riley and Nad saying, with the help of the TV licence? Is this a, a new way to get people back to paying for their licence? If we don't pay, we won't get certainty. Uh, or there'll be no certainty that there'll be programmes. Uh, thanks, uh, Tony, for that. Paddy Duffy says, as long as Fine Gael has anything to do with government, the crisis in social and affordable housing will never be solved. Their ideology of laissez-faire towards the market will not allow it. And one other who held this particular ideology was Charles Trevelyan of uh, the Fields of Athenry Infamy. Thanks, Paddy Duffy, as always. Uh, Michael, there's a 16-house development going on in Rathmoyland since 2020. Another caller says people have paid their deposits but have been strung along with one excuse after another. Our our daughter and her partner and their one-year-old child waiting to get into their house. The latest excuse is they're waiting for permission from Meath County Council to move a street lamppost before Irish Water will install the mains. Perhaps some of those councillors will look into this as people are being given no respect by this developer. Thank you indeed, Navin Listener, for that. It's very, very frustrating uh, with new estates uh, when the only delay is connecting to the services, uh, as Tommy Riley was saying earlier on, whether that's Irish water or the electricity. Hi, Michael, says another listener. I know of three houses in my area that are empty the last two years. Nothing wrong with them, like uh, 1,200 people can't refuse these houses and hundreds more councils. uh, It's not possible that they should be empty. Um, Why are the houses empty for as long as they are? It's as if they're forgotten about. 
We need answers about these houses with nothing wrong with them at all, says Shirley. Uh, If there's nothing wrong with them, why aren't people living in them? Uh, John texting us today as well. He says, Mike, last week you highlighted uh, the manner Ukrainian refugees were being treated in a local B&B and rightly so. Today you're highlighting the amount of people who are homeless in the country. However, I can't understand how the government can continue taking in refugees when it's crystal clear that we can't cope. We must house the people already in need before we add to the homeless figures again, says John. Thanks, John, for that. And I I know that a a lot of people feel like that, uh, but you can't leave people in uh, a war situation. uh, We have uh, all of these obligations, whether you agree with that or or not, and we end up paying fines, whether you agree with it or not. But I think most people in the country, John, think you can't leave people wondering if uh, they're going to be blown to smithereens in the morning or uh, whether... uh, They'll be blown to smithereens in the afternoon. Anyway, thanks for your call. Our telephone number, as always, is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 1-800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Central Statistics Office uh, published more data on uh, the census uh, last week, giving more information behind uh, the data that we had already received. Uh, and very interestingly told us about a huge increase in the number of people who are renting accommodation and are over the age of 65. Uh, I guess... It's not that long ago since it was unheard of in this country that somebody over 65 would be renting somewhere to live. Uh, But that figure has increased 83% since uh, the last uh, census in 2016 and more than doubled since the census before that in 2011. Frank Dillon, Head of Communications and Funding with Alone, the charity uh, that helps people to age at home, is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Frank, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. You've had to help people uh, who are renting uh, accommodation uh, but have found themselves uh, in trouble many times over. So this data from the CSO probably doesn't come as much of a, a surprise to you in Alone. No, indeed, Michael, and good morning, and good morning to your listeners. No, Alone, as unfortunately we've seen um, thousands of interventions um, in housing in the first six months of this year in Loud Alone. The housing issues have doubled so far year on year. Um, and it's the second most popular area that we get calls from. It's still second to social isolation, but housing is its a very strong issue for older people in 65. And, it's, and so we're saying it, and now the census is telling us what we, we we're feeling is that over 65 in the rental market, with the, as we all know, the well-documented high rents at a time in your life when your income is fixed and, and at best halved, um, if not reduced, completely from um, when you are working and it's just a, it's a precarious position to be in if you're relying on having to pay rent um, to landlords Right and I take it it's also a sign of a, an ageing population or just as the years goes on uh, that uh, if uh, you were renting in 2011 or 2016 uh, when you were 40 or 55 now you're 65 that's it, and it's, it's a big concern for people that are in their 40s and 50s now because it, it's just becoming the thin, it is the thin end of the wedge. 
And the issue with it is because our social welfare system is basically based on the idea that you hit 65 and you own an asset mm. and then you're entitled to a state pension that allows you to live, if you're solely reliant on a state pension, you're, you're living on subsistence, but you're able to feed and eat and, and pay medical expenses that also increase. But if, if you're paying up to, and, and the figures are up to 30 of your disposable income in rent, there's very little left um, for heating and eating and all those other issues. And it's also the nature of our rental sector. It's that there is no long-term leases. They're they're very rare and and people don't have security at a time in their life when they need it and and they need to grow. To basically live and die in their own communities is, is... a thing we took for granted in the past, um, but now it's, it's, it's becoming precarious. And with home ownership uh, levels dropping and more people renting, I take it that as the years go on, there will be more and more older people who are renting uh, and never got to buy their own home. That's, that's exactly what the figures are telling us, yeah. And, and even more recently, there was a summary of social housing assessments that showed for the first time, people aged 70, over 70, um, on the social housing list has gone over 2,000, which is, it's, it's a very precarious position to be in. Um, and, and we're calling for more social housing to be developed for older people, mm. um, 25%, because we need the councils and the local authorities to start putting the right type of housing in the communities where they can see these demographic figures and they can see what they need and, and to get ahead of the curve and provide that housing, because as you know, Michael, it's an ecosystem. Um, if, if somebody moves out of a family mm-hmm. home into a, a specially designed home to, to age in, where they can age comfortably at home, then it frees up family housing. So it's, it's mm-hmm. but it's about putting the right housing in the right places. It's it's hard to understand how people afford the level of rent at the moment. I think uh, the average rent in this part of the world is around 1500 or 2000 in Dublin. It's a lot of money, but I suppose if you're working and earning enough to cover it, that's one thing. But what happens when you retire, when you're relying solely on the pension, when you've no other source of income? How do you afford rent? How do you continue to afford your rent if it is as high as that? Uh, and let's not forget that we're, uh, as things stand, we're talking about 17,000 households uh, where people are over 65 who are renting at the moment. Uh, and that number going to continue to increase, uh, as you say, over the coming years. And, and there just isn't that that, that system because half runs out at sixty five. You then get your you're into a pension system. So it 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 is something that needs to be planned out and and addressed by the government. You know, mm. did the government pay your two thousand rent though? They go. They 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 won't. The, the half system doesn't fully cover. It, no. Right. So so, what do people do? Do they have to move, or how, how, they, how make, do they... they make serious sacrifices and they apply for social housing, um, which is but they're they're applying for social housing on a list with with everybody else that needs social housing at the moment. Mm. So it's 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 not ideal because some social housing is a lot of it is geared primarily to families and, and family structures. Yeah, and a lot of old people are looking for you know one bed. Max two, um, and and those are the that's the housing stock we're not delivering. Mm. 
It's not hard to imagine that 17,000, uh, that figure of 17,000 doubling or trebling or uh, more than that, uh, that we could have, you know, 50,000 or 100,000 people uh, over the age of 65 who are, are renting in this country. If you look at how many people are deciding to rent and we're told that it'll become more and more commonplace, uh, but it's not an unusual situation at the same time. Uh, people rent all of their lives in Europe and that has always been the case in many countries. What do they do there uh, when they stop working? when uh, they become a pensionable age. Uh, does the government support with the accommodation that they're used to? I think in a lot of European models, you do see that. You see, as you say, you know, renting is it's a fact of life and they have more structured leases, more long-term leases, and people are able to adapt the homes that they live in as they get older, even rental accommodation, because there's incentives there for landlords to adapt housing for older people and they have structures, longer leases and a social system that accepts rent is a fact of life and, and will kick in when you, you you move to pensionable age and you, you become qualified for your pension, you're entitled to a pension and then there's rental support that goes in with mm. that. And uh, we're not planning uh, in, in that respect here and uh, this is what you're calling the double deficit that you've got uh, so many people uh, getting to a, 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 an age where they've retired but don't own their own home, they're renting, but uh, nothing uh, in place to deal with that uh, as those numbers increase over the years. No, not specific housing for older people, which is, is, is what we're saying we need. And, and of course, we need first-time buyers to sort it too. But really, the, the shift in the population is at the older end and, and that's where we're going to need to provide a lot more cost rental and a lot more social housing specifically for older people and that can be universally designed so it doesn't need to be retrospectively adapted it can be built with the right specs so somebody can stay at home longer which saves an awful lot of money from the nursing home system and the medical system and it becomes a much better model that we adapt because as it stands at the moment, we have a million people over 60. Mm. OK. Uh, and uh, the first step uh, you suggest uh, uh, should be taken uh, in the budget ahead and look at new bills and uh, to ensure that 25% are, are developed to age-friendly and universal design standards. Yeah, and local authorities look at their local figures and see how they're ageing. Like, uh, one in five people in Loud at the moment are over 60. And the average age has gone up to 38 now from 36 in 2016. So a local authority can see that the population is ageing, where they need the homes, the types of homes they need. And if they start providing the right homes, well then housing will get that flow through where family homes become available and, and it solves it for everyone. So, But we need to address the fact that we need specialised housing. And, and dedicated housing for older people because that's where the population is pushing it. Okay, we'll leave there. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Frank Dillon, Head of Communications and Funding with Alone. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about Emily again. Uh, I'm sure you remember Emily. Emily, uh, or at least what happened to Emily 
shocked all of us. Emily, uh, an elderly woman who was raped in a nursing home by a care worker who had uh, been working in uh, that nursing home for some 16 years and is now serving an 11-year prison sentence for that rape. The question was, how many other people had this sexual deviant interfered with uh, when he seemed to have a a free run in the nursing home. Two separate investigations were set up uh, and uh, that uh, led to more concern, uh, indeed more shock for that matter. Uh, But the independent expert, Marcella Leonard, who headed up one of uh, those investigations, told the Sunday Independent that her investigation was wound down early because uh, the HSE said it was taking too long. They called a halt, meaning surviving residents who may have been sexually or physically abused may not have been identified, so will not receive appropriate therapeutic treatment. Unquote. Uh, she also said that This happened in spite of finding that 21 cases clearly had reached the threshold to be forwarded to Gardaí for investigation. When you look at the 21 files and you don't have enough to meet the threshold for referral to the guards, you don't stop there. You stop when you are not finding anything. You don't stop when you are finding matters of concern. Uh, As I say, that was reported in the Sunday Independent yesterday. Nate O'Connor, policy specialist with Age Action Ireland, joins us now. Good morning to you, Nate, and thanks uh, for taking the time to be with us on the programme this morning. This is of significant concern, isn't it? Well, certainly the whole case is, you know, very distressing. It's upset uh, an awful lot of people around the country. Uh, and obviously we use testament to the, the strength of Emily's family in coming forward uh, and, you know, making this more widely known. I mean, the, the person involved has been convicted, um, which is important. Uh, and it's also, I understand that, you know, the, the independent expert has expressed concern that there's another 21 possible cases that her investigation has not been concluded. But my understanding is two weeks ago, the HSE did refer all 21 cases to the Gardaí mm. so that there is, you know, they have found reasonable grounds for concern in relation to both physical or perhaps sexual abuse in these cases. And so that, that, that process is, is, I suppose, ongoing on the Garda side of the criminal investigation. But certainly there is a, a bigger question here. Certainly independent investigations shouldn't be curtailed, shouldn't be shut down. Mm. It's important that, you know, when these matters come to light, we have a full investigation that we really drill into. How, how is this possible? Because we do have, you know, robust codes of safeguarding in, in the HSE. But what we feel is missing is safeguarding law that, you know, if there was a legal obligation to you know, follow a certain uh, actions whenever a safeguarding concern comes up. We feel that would create a stronger uh, situation in every nursing home and every other sort of equivalent care environment uh, that people would know that it's a legal requirement, not just a, a code of best practice. And so that's something that uh, Age Action and other organisations have called for. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, I was just going to ask you though about the concerns of Marcella Leonard uh, because those 21 files were referred uh, but they had reviewed 32 residents and 70 residents uh, they believe had been exposed to this individual who had uh, raped Emily and her 
thought on it is you don't stop at the 21, you continue on until you find nothing to be worried about. Well, that's certainly... Uh you know, is, is, is of serious concern um, that, you know, if she's conducting an independent investigation, she's been tasked with doing that, then, you know, that has to be allowed to run its course. And so certainly it would be good to see an explanation from the HSE as to why, you know, why, why, why that has been curtailed. It's not enough to say it's taking too long. We know from history that, you know, investigations of various sorts, tribunals and commissions and so on, do take time. Uh, it requires having the expertise made available uh, of people to go through files in a forensic way uh, to talk to witnesses. And it's it's not always, you know, immediate that you can get access to people and, and get their testimony and so on. So so there is a process to be gone through. And it's very important that um, for, for everybody concerned, for, you know, for public concern with this issue, that, that, that that's allowed to continue. Mm. Well, how did it happen in, in the first instance is another question uh, and uh, the uh, independent expert uh, that Marcella Leonard is who was charged with looking at that question says she provided an in-depth analysis of how sexual abuse can happen in an institution by explaining this offender's modus operandi but that didn't appear in the HSE's published report. Well I can't comment on why, why they chose not to publish that um, but that's certainly another question for the HSE to answer. Um, but it is, I mean, it, it, it is a real concern. Um, if we look at the, the HSE every year publishes a report on adult safeguarding, mm-hmm. and they publish the, the fact the figures of, of accusations, and unfortunately, there's over 150 accusations of sexual abuse in 2022. That's the latest report. And that would be similar figures going back through the years. And that's of people age 65 and older. Oh, you know, 150 cases. So, so we know that sexual abuse, unfortunately, is is something that comes up, and obviously, it's going to be reported at the HSE more often mm-hmm. in situations such as HSE um, care environments. Um, although there are, there are national safeguarding teams who will take reports from any quarter. Uh, and so we have that system up and running, but it is very important that we 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 drill into how how this is happening. And obviously, we need to close all the doors that might be avenues that would allow perpetrators to to operate and to make sure that it's simply not possible mm. you know, for, for that to happen, particularly over a, such a long period of time. Yeah, and I suppose there is that line of thought. If it can happen, it will happen. And if it has happened in one nursing home, it's probable if uh, not... Um, uh, it's possible, if not probable, I should say, it's possible, if not probable, that it is happening in other nursing homes. Well, it's certainly possible. I mean, we, again, we don't want to create a situation of, of panic where people are, you know, worried unnecessarily about their loved ones. But it is important to ask questions and to reassure yourself of, you know, what are the procedures in place? You know, who 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 is in contact with a loved one in, in a residential care? And to make sure that you're happy with, with these things. Uh, and it's absolutely, you know, that's that's important. But it's also important that we pay more attention to what the uh, older person is saying themselves. Mm. We we have the new decision support service, uh, which has come in on the back of the Assisted Decision Making Capacity Act, and we're doing away with the old legal framework of wards of court. The assumption now is a person has capacity, or if they lack capacity, that you know you assist them as much as is possible to 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 express their will and preference. And part of the story with Emily was that she wasn't believed. And, you know, was there an element of ageism? Because it was an older person, perhaps suffering with dementia or other issues, that she wasn't believed. 
but it is absolutely important that we put the person, the older person, the resident, back at the centre of our thinking here and make sure that when they express concern, in whatever way they might express it, that, that that's taken seriously and it's not just dismissed as, a, as something to do with uh, the, the illness that they may be affected by. Mm. And believed in every aspect of their life. Obviously, this is a very sens- um, serious incident and, and the idea of somebody being sexually assaulted uh, shouldn't be ignored. Uh, but whatever the complaint is, uh, should be taken seriously as well, I take it. Absolutely. And again, you know, people may sometimes, you know, be confused or be worried unnecessarily, but we have to take it seriously. We have to take seriously that what the person is saying and make sure that they are feeling reassured, they're feeling safe in the place which is their home. You know, when you move into a residential care setting, you may be there for a couple of years, that's your home. And you should absolutely feel secure and safe in that environment. And, you know, it, it behoves all of us to make sure that we put whatever measures are necessary, uh, including safeguarding law and other procedures in place, so that, you know, we're providing people with the care and security in their own homes. Okay, Nate, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, Nate O'Connor, Policy Specialist with Age Action Ireland. Now, some more of uh, the comments coming to us uh, today. Eric Cuthbert in Dundalk says, Good morning, Mike. The real solution to the housing crisis is to reduce the population of the country and the world for that matter. Uh, Depopulate, there will be less need for housing. Uh, (laughs) More houses available for the fewer people, I take it, uh, that uh, Eric is talking about. Paddy Interman Fecken, thanks for your WhatsApp message as well. He says, Michael, all of these failures across our institutions cannot just be because of haphazard planning or decision making. Is there something else going on in the background internationally or from the EU, says Paddy. Thanks, uh, Paddy. Uh, I'm not sure like what, um, but I think we've heard uh, of uh, some very worrying situations that people find themselves in this morning. Uh, Thanks, uh, as I say, um, for your message, as always. Um, We've uh, another message uh, then that comes to us uh, from Olivia Indrahada about scams. Uh, Another one which she says was tried on her Uh, If you sell something on adverts or or buy something on one of uh, these sites, uh, a text then comes afterwards to say that they're too busy to come but would like to buy your item and then they'll send a courier. So they get you to pay the courier online and then they'll send the money with the courier in an envelope. I I thought it was genuine, um, but uh, I was lucky, uh, says Olivia, thanks uh, for that uh, message, Olivia. Um, I'm not sure that uh, that's uh, something that uh, we should be watching out for, but thanks, as I, I say, uh, for that. Deirdre and Kel's in touch with us as well, uh, saying um, dreadful what is happening with landlords uh, taking or looking for sex for rent. I couldn't believe what I was looking at on primetime last week. Landlords taking advantage of women. Uh, it, it's really uh, dreadful um, uh, and she also wonders did we see Marty Morrissey on a bicycle on the M50 going to Crow Park uh, I'd imagine that one's doing the rounds as well Deirdre is it <laughs> he gave uh, the car back to 
RTA uh, says Deirdre probably gave it back to Renault for that matter but thanks uh, indeed as always uh, for your message to the programme Deirdre that's all we have time for for today our time has run out on us once again Maggie McGuire research Chris Murray is in the control tower I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.